regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I'm glad to be with you today. You know, occasionally when I'm writing a story for Bearing Arms, I will get a couple of paragraphs in, and I will realize, eh, actually, I don't know where I'm going with this. Maybe this isn't as good an idea as I thought. And I will generally scrap those stories. You might not realize it, but I do. I try to, anyway. I get the sense... That Timothy O'Brien, who is a, a columnist for Bloomberg, um, had that same thought as he was writing his latest column, but he was on deadline and just had to go ahead and proceed with it because this is one of the dumbest things that I have read in quite some time. Uh, the headline from the Washington Post, which apparently saw fit to pick this thing up, an executive order that might actually stop gun violence. That is a that's a bold claim. For, for any one piece of legislation or executive order. But uh, Timothy O'Brien says that there is something that Joe Biden can do right now without getting Congress involved that could stop gun violence, he says. Yeah, what is it? All right, take a look at this. Sales of military-grade firearms, he says, need to be curtailed as soon as possible. And without waiting on Congress, President Joe Biden should issue an executive order preventing the Departments of Defense, Justice, Homeland Security, and Treasury, any federal agency, from awarding contracts to small arms manufacturers that sell comparable weapons to average citizens. Gunmakers, he says, should be forced to choose with whom they do business, soldiers or citizens. That's right. Any any comparable firearm, which I, I guess it would include not just semi-automatic rifles, but semi-automatic handguns as well. Uh, I mean, again, there are plenty of sidearms that are purchased by military and federal law enforcement agencies that are comparable, if not identical, to those handguns that are sold to civilians, right? That seems to me to be a problem here. Because now you're talking about cutting off sales of handguns and semi-automatic rifles, again, to those companies that don't bend the knee to the Biden administration and say, okay, well, we'll, 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 we'll stop selling these guns. Just please give us our federal contracts. So, from the get-go, this idea seems, I'm going to be charitable here, um, unworkable. But it's a stupid idea on multiple levels. As I, again, I think Timothy O'Brien started to understand as he wrote this column. He says, quote, how potent would an executive order like this be? Well, it would depend on how much it would hurt the bottom line of companies that sell to the government. Many of the companies, he says, are privately held, so their annual revenue and earnings aren't freely available. Sales at Smith & Wesson, which is publicly traded, doubled to more than $1 billion last year. The company estimates that about 94% of its revenue came from consumer sales last year. The federal government and law enforcement made up only 6% of sales. So there's another problem. Why would these companies say, to hell with the 94% of our customers, because we're going after that 6% of sales to federal law enforcement or the military doesn't make a lot of sense to me and i think again it started to make less sense to timothy o'brien who then tries to justify this by saying well in that context here are a few takeaways from those figures one it should worry you that gun proliferation is so extensive that average consumers have more small arms than law enforcement and the military no 
It shouldn't worry you that the American people have more firearms than law enforcement and the military. That has been the case pretty much since the founding of this country, right? In fact, I mean, go back and read what the founders said about the value of an armed citizenry. That, 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 that's the underlying premise of why the founders felt like the Second Amendment was so important to serve as a check on tyranny. If the people capable of bearing arms could serve as a check on a tyrannical government, or would serve as a check on the tyrannical government, then it was important that the people of the United States, unlike, by the way, the people of Europe, as James Madison wrote about in Federalist 46, maintain their ability to both keep and bear arms. But again, Timothy O'Brien writes for Bloomberg, so it's no surprise that he's, you know, alarmed by the fact that, uh, yes, 100 million or so Americans exercise their uh, Second Amendment rights. Uh, the second uh, problem that he has, he says, uh, uh, with the, uh, the, the the data showing that the vast majority of sales from gun companies are to consumers, is that, uh, quote, gun makers might simply walk away from federal contracts if they're forced to make a choice. Yeah, we just kind of talked about that, didn't we? And three, he says, sales aren't the only leverage the White House has with gun makers. That's another takeaway. Which, what? I, that's the whole basis of his big idea for an executive order, right? Is that, well, you, well we're going to restrict your sales. You're not going to make as much money if you keep selling to civilians because we'll shut you out of the, uh, the federal uh, uh, firearms market. O'Brien says, should gun makers forego government sales after an executive order, they would lose a valuable marketing partner. Handgun sales in the U.S. took off in the 1980s, in part because Beretta and Glock marketed their guns as the preferred weapons of the military and police departments. Fetishizing guns as the tools of warriors and sheriffs has proved to be a wildly successful marketing strategy for gun makers. Visits to their website show how much military bravado is still central to their messaging. Would they want to give up their marketing mojo and lose a chunk of sales if the federal government walked away from contracts? Again, I'm not sure Timothy O'Brien understands what it is that he's actually calling for. Because if the gun makers can't sell comparable models of firearms to what is purchased by the federal government, then they're not going to be marketing those handguns to consumers either. Because again, many of those guns are comparable to these sidearms that are already in use by the federal government. So... Again, his argument just falls apart. And I, I, I think, again, by this point, Timothy O'Brien understood that. So I think Timothy O'Brien wanted to get some expertise, a, uh, you know, the, the, that expert analysis who could uh, say, yeah, Tim, that's a great idea. But he didn't get it. Instead, he spoke to Eric Rubin, professor at the Denman School of Law at Southern Methodist University, a fellow at the Brennan Center of Justice, which is, by the way, not a conservative think tank in any stretch of the imagination. And this is what Eric Rubin had to say. Quote, it's a fascinating idea, but all of the legal, constitutional, and feasibility issues would turn on how an executive order would be implemented. It's a fascinating idea is a really polite way of saying, that's a really dumb idea, Tim. How would you do this? How would you deal with the constitutional issues, with all of the legal issues? How, how, how is this even feasible? Timothy O'Brien apparently took that as a, uh, a, a note of approval. He said, uh, quote, perhaps the executive order could apply contractual limitations only to military style of Sullivan's and not, you know, all comparable handguns. Hunters, he says, could still get their rifles. Sporting enthusiasts could have their guns. People who want to carry a modest firearm to protect themselves wouldn't be affected. What is a modest firearm, by the way, like a single shot Derringer? The police could still get the firepower they need, but potential mass shooters wouldn't have access to the kind of weapon used to evolve the other horrific crime scenes, which 
no, none of that is true. Um, hunters, many of them, do use modern sporting rifles. Sporting enthusiasts do own millions of the most popular rifles sold in the country today. Again, not sure what a modest firearm is, according to uh, Tim. But the idea that even if gun manufacturers went along with this executive order, that AR-15s and modern sporting rifles would suddenly be unavailable to civilians, including those who might misuse them to commit a crime, is absurd. Because not every gunmaker has a federal contract. In fact, most of them don't. So even if all of the major manufacturers went along with this executive order, which I don't think they would, but let's just say for the sake of argument that they all did, what about the hundreds, if not thousands, of gun makers across the United States who may not have as big a footprint as SIG or Glock or uh, even Daniel Defense, but they're producing modern sporting rifles, how would they be impacted by this executive order at all? They wouldn't be. In fact, they would be, well, I shouldn't say they would not be impacted. They would be positively impacted. Because if the major manufacturer said, okay, we won't sell to civilians anymore, all these other companies would say, cool, we don't have any federal contracts. We're not we're not covered under this executive order. Uh, things are going to go on as normal. And by the way, we just increased our customer base. So thanks, Joe Biden. That's exactly what would happen. There is, this is going to be really difficult for a guy like Timothy O'Brien to accept. In a nation with 100 million gun owners and with 400 million lawfully owned firearms and the right to both keep and bear them, there is no way, no way that you are going to ban your way to safety. There is no way that a solution that focuses on reducing the supply of firearms to everybody is going to have the type of impact on the very small number of violent criminals in our society that actually targeting those violent criminals would have. Rather than wasting time trying to reduce the supply of firearms, again, a constitutionally protected item, we should be looking at ways to reduce demand among those who are most likely to criminally misuse them. Right? And one of the best ways to do that, again, is to ensure that there are consequences for using a firearm in the commission of a crime. Started with an arrest, then going to a prosecution, then a conviction that amounts to more than a slap on the wrist. None of that, of course, Timothy O'Brien bothers to mention. He just has this uh, absolutely bonkers idea that uh, Biden can issue some executive order and all of a sudden, bloop, AR-15s disappear from the consumer market. Not going to happen, even if Biden were dumb enough to uh, try to actually put an executive order like that into place. But again, I think this shows the sort of wishful thinking of the uh, anti-gun lobby. And more importantly, uh, it shows where their ultimate goal really lies. And that's not public safety, though they might think it is. It's a gun-free society. And the damage that would be done to this nation in their attempts to actually put that into effect, uh, well, be far worse than the, uh, than the problem that they're seeking to address, quite frankly. You know, but we do have issues with violent criminals. I'm not denying it. Every day on this program, we have the recidivist report, where we talk about a case of someone who got a sweetheart plea deal, 
despite lengthy run-ins with the law, it was the first story I wrote today at uh, Bearing Arms. It's about the uh, guy who killed two cops in Omani, California, and the fact that a convicted felon arrested in 2020 with a gun, with ammunition, and with methamphetamine, and yet Los Angeles DA George Gascon's office allowed him to plea bargain down to uh, felon in possession of a firearm with no prison time whatsoever. Could have gotten three years in a California prison. If Gascon had referred this case to federal court, he probably would have gotten closer to five. Instead, I think he got two weeks, time served, basically, and then a couple of years probation. That was just last year. Yeah, and uh, Tuesday, he shot and killed two Omani police officers. Could have been behind bars. Should have been behind bars. And in a state with the most restrictive gun laws in the country, <laughs> violent felons are still getting out of jail scot-free after pleading guilty to their crimes. Gascon, by the way, still is calling for more gun control laws to be put on the books. Yeah, as ironic as that is. But that's not today's recidivist report because it doesn't just happen in places like Los Angeles. And it doesn't just happen with Soros-supported prosecutors like George Gascon. Here's a story from Joplin, Missouri. Suspect in Joplin shooting and kidnapping granted probation. That's right. Probation for a shooting and a kidnapping. Benjamin Bartlett, 22 years old. He was accused of firing a shotgun twice into a camper in Joplin uh, back in December. There were two guys inside. One of them uh, had a portion of his ear ripped off by uh, some of the pellets. About six hours later, Bartlett saw police officers who were driving around Joplin, and he thought that a guy in the backseat of the car that he was driving in uh, called police on him. So he basically held the guy hostage for a few hours, wouldn't let him out of the car, said he would shoot him if he, uh, if he left. He was initially charged, Bartlett was, with uh, two counts of first-degree assault, a single count of armed criminal action, kidnapping, resisting arrest, and another armed criminal action in the abduction and eventual pursuit by police, by the way. Uh, the charges from the shooting were dismissed back in March because prosecutors could not locate the victims to secure their testimony. So that's an issue. But you still had the kidnapping, you had the armed criminal action, resisting arrest charges. Bartlett was also facing previous charges of delivery of a controlled substance and driving while intoxicated. And all of those cases were combined into one. And on March 21st, he pleaded guilty to possession of a controlled substance, stealing a firearm, resisting arrest, and driving while intoxicated. The kidnapping and armed criminal action charges were thrown out. And on Tuesday of this week, a judge in Joplin sentenced Bartlett to five years on the drug count, five years on the stolen gun count, four years on resisting arrest, and six months for DUI. And then suspended every one of those sentences and said, you don't have to go to prison at all. Five years probation. Keep your nose out of trouble for the next five years and you won't go to prison. Don't keep your nose out of trouble. And we're going to tell you we're going to get tough on you, but uh, eh, odds are probably not. I don't know if she actually told him that, but that is the reality of the situation. And so instead of a five-year prison sentence, which would have amounted probably to about two and a half years served, Benjamin Bartlett showed up in court, got a slap on the wrist kiss on the cheek, and was sent on his merry way. That's the problem. Not the 100 million legal gun owners in this country. Not the 400 million lawfully possessed firearms. But a criminal justice system that takes a violent criminal and says, you're free to go. Just don't do it again. That 
is the problem. And that, by the way, isn't touched by anything in the Senate framework that they're trying to turn into legislation right now. Now, today's armed citizen story, Muncie, Indiana, where a, a prosecutor has said that a Muncie woman was justified in killing a would-be intruder as he was uh, trying to break in through a kitchen window. Uh, and again, I, I don't dispute or disagree with the prosecutor's conclusions here. I am wondering why it took so long to reach this decision. This happened back in mid-November, and we're just now learning that she's not going to be facing any charges in mid-June. Um, but again, this d- dates back to, I, I think, November 18th. And police uh, responded to reports of a guy trying to break into a home there in Muncie. And uh, they looked around. They didn't find anything. They came out around 1145 on November 18th uh, after the homeowner called 911. They told her, look, you know, don't see anything amiss, but uh, we'll we'll have an uh, extra car, you know, in the neighborhood just to try to keep an eye on things. About six hours later, so it would have been, what, about 545 on the morning of November 19th, the homeowner again heard somebody outside her home trying to break in. This time through a kitchen window. She saw hands lifting the window up. Prosecutors say she then fired a handgun at the window as a, quote, warning shot. She then called 911. An officer responded and found uh, the uh, suspect, Keon Davis, laying on the ground a few feet from the window. Officers found uh, finger or handprints in at least four of the windows of the home. Under one window, there was a uh, uh, a cinder block that had been placed there as as a stool, basically. Um, Davis had a backpack with a stolen laptop and other items inside. Toxicology tests revealed the presence of uh, fentanyl and quote-unquote designer opioids. Uh, They say they don't know why he was trying to break into the home, but they do know that the homeowner was justified in protecting herself and her child from uh, Davis's unwanted incursion into the residence there. So, uh, yeah, the homeowner not facing any charges. She acted in self-defense. Wish the prosecutors there in uh, Marion County, Indiana, would have told her this a little bit sooner, but uh, at least now she doesn't have to worry about uh, facing criminal charges for trying to protect herself and her kid. Finally today, our good deed of the day, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where uh, Fort Knox Army Base says it is going to uh, honor Justin Manko after he uh, leapt into action to save a four-year-old boy after he was run over by a lawnmower in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Thankfully, the lawnmower was not uh, the blades were not engaged at the time. Uh, this would have been much worse, obviously. Um, and, and you know, this may happen if you live in a rural area in particular. Like, I've got a riding mower. It's a zero-turn mower. Um, I don't generally use it. I don't, have a, I don't have a four-wheeler. I don't have an ATV. Wish I did. Somebody wants to buy me one for my birthday. It's coming up. But I don't. So, occasionally, especially over the last few years, as my wife has, you know, gone through cancer and has kind of sapped her strength and, and her stamina... She will occasionally, I will occasionally too, use the mower as a means of transportation from one end of the farm to the other. And that apparently was what was going on here in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. There was a seven-year-old girl who is allowed by her parents to use the lawnmower, uh, not to turn the blades on, but basically to use it as a way to get around. So she was driving up their driveway to get the mail. She had her four-year-old on the back of the lawnmower. Not a good idea, by the way. She goes to back up after getting the mail and thump, uh, her brother had fallen off and was now underneath the lawnmower. Again, Blaze not engaged, thankfully, but it's still a big, heavy piece of equipment. This is a four-year-old child. So, thankfully, she was at the end of the road. She's near the mailbox, right? She's near the street. Justin Manko saw what was going on, stopped, got out of his car, ran over, 
picked up the lawnmower, was able to get the four-year-old child out before the four-year-old suffered serious injuries, was taken to the hospital, uh, and I guess spent some time there, but thankfully is going to recover and is going to be okay, uh, in large part, again, because Justin Manko saw what was going on and took action. The seven-year-old not nearly strong enough to lift the lawnmower up off her little brother. Hopefully, the kids have now gotten a, uh, a lesson and a reminder in uh, safe and responsible use of a lawnmower, but uh, Justin Manko in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help that four-year-old boy. We thank you for your very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program, as always. Don't forget to check out the website uh, throughout the weekend. We'll be back on Monday with another episode of Cam and Company, but we will be updating BarryandArms.com every day in between to make sure that you are aware of what is going on at this critically important time for our right to keep and bear arms. I would also encourage you to uh, contact your senators and let them know where you stand on that Senate framework. And uh, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP member of Bearing Arms as well. You can go to BarryandArms.com, use the promo code, actually BarryandArms.com slash subscribe is the actual website. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS. You can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As our way of saying thanks for showing your support, we're going to give you exclusive content, news stories, analysis, stuff you won't find anywhere else because your support does matter, and it really does make a difference. So thank you again. I hope you enjoy your weekend. Whatever you have in store, we will be back again on Monday, as I said. But until then, be well, be safe, and be free.